60 events around the world um, to ask why think tanks matter. Um, it's an initiative from the University of Pennsylvania Think Tanks and Civil Societies Program. Um, and it coincides with their publication of the global go-to think tank ranking um, of 2017. So we're not going to talk about who's where on the ranking, but if you are interested, there'll be a copy of the report um, on our website linked to um, uh, the page um, for the event. What we are going to do um, is to um, ask ourselves, um, and very certainly the panel uh, are, are asking themselves, why think tanks matter? Um, uh, the context this year has not changed so much from last year, so uh, why think tanks matter um, in, in, uh, in disruptive periods, and we're, under, uh, uh, we're currently undergoing, let's say, a number of political um, and digital disruptions, um, and indeed in some areas the political and the digital are crossing over to be very disruptive, um, and um, the question for us is, where do we fit in? The existential question for think tanks, um, I think, um, uh, over a longer period um, is who is our audience and how has our audience changed? Um, when we all started, um, digital, if it existed, meant a website, um, and our missions were designed um, for us to be able to inform policymakers um, and be involved in the policymaking process. Now the public takes a much bigger part in that, and whereas before we were unable to reach the public without going through the prism of the press, which comes with its own problems, now we're able to do it directly. Should we do it directly? How should we do that? Um, what kind of strategy should we should we employ? But first of all, um, let me introduce um, our two panelists. Um, uh, Shada Islam is the director for Europe and geopolitics at Friends of Europe. She is uh, she is our Brussels colleague. Um, uh, in a moment, I'll ask her to introduce herself and also put a context uh, on where she thinks uh, we are in terms of uh, current disruption and how our organisation responds to it. Um, and on my left, we have uh, Hilib Vishlinsky, who is Executive Director for the Center of Economic Strategy uh, in Ukraine. Um, Bruegel has been um, part of this annual effort to ask why think tanks matter for a number of years. We're always careful to invite somebody from outside of the Brussels bubble and outside of our own experience, um, because um, perhaps think tanks um, are appreciated in a very different way, in a very different context. Um, so um, I, I hope that that will be enlightening to all of us. But first, we give the floor to Shada. So thank you very much, Matt. Good afternoon, everyone. It's really wonderful to be here and see so many of you old friends here. I'm going to talk about uh, three things. So first of all, these disruptions that Matt has ma mentioned. Uh, how relevant does that make think tanks? And I'll say yes, but I'll tell you why. And my third point is yes, but we have to change. Uh, think tanks can't go on as we have so far. These are troubled times, difficult times, and it behoves us uh, to change. So the, the disruption, I mean, we, we all know, but they're happening on three fronts, I think, which we need to take account of. Of course, the global, the global stage, so Trump and the retreat of the U.S. from the global stage. Uh, we've had also, you know, all kinds of China's emergence, Russia's uh, resurgence. So those are things that are happening on the global stage. And if you as I have just come back from Asia, I was in India, you realize how much those changes, the emergence of China as a very 
assertive and self-confident player is, I wouldn't say destabilizing, but changing the balance in that region. So that's something that impacts on us as well. Clearly, within Europe, I mean, the biggest disruption has been Brexit, uh, but also immigration crisis, quote unquote, um, and, you know, the rise of populism, which is sort of knitted into the, the, the immigration debate, unfortunately, I have to say. Um, but, uh, but there are bigger societal disruptions happening outside as well, and I think we haven't even seen the beginning of what automation, robotization, artificial intelligence are going to do to our societies. Uh, populists are talk, talking about foreigners taking our jobs. It's actually going to be machines and robots that are going to take our jobs. And I don't think we have really thought about it uh, as, 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 as deeply and strongly as we should have. Um, so the world is changing before our very eyes. And of course, it's a cause for anxiety, unease, and discomfort. But what I see, and that's very much also on my personal level, but also Friends of Europe, um, I think it's also a moment of excitement, and, and change is good. Um, I'm deeply, deeply moved by the resistance, hashtag resistance movement in the United States, by how... Um, active and how passionate the Remainers are in, in the Brexit debate as well. And I think these are, are things that have woken us up. We're all more woke now than ever before because we were complacent. We've taken things for granted. The liberal order was moving nicely. You know, everything was going fine and we had become very, very complacent. We took things for granted. So I think, Matt, this is a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call for our societies, all of us, but also for think tanks. So let me just, my second point about think tanks, I think it makes think tanks even more relevant and important than before, and it makes our task of analyzing and uh, much more challenging. The fact is, the fact is that we've based all our arguments, all our work on facts and figures, on, on rational arguments, uh, the, the, you know, the, the pros and cons of something. We've looked into things in a very analytical, we've tried to be very objective, very analytical in the way we've looked at things. It's not working anymore. Uh, the, 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 the people on the other side, if I can say the illiberals, uh, are, are using techniques and tactics and strategies that we had not even thought of. Because we're ethical. We're ethical. We think we should do things in a good way. Um, but so we're, we're unprepared for the fake news, the hybrid threats. Um, and we need as think tanks to really hone our communication skills. Uh, facts and figures are very important to back up our arguments, uh, but they need to be communicated uh, with slightly more emotion, more passion, more conviction, if you like. So we need to make that social, uh, emotional connection, even when we're using social media. So digital actually needs to be made into a more personal communication, otherwise it doesn't fly. So we're dealing with, uh, as think tanks, you know, Matt, we're dealing with people who have very short attention spans. I mean, nobody can read those big volumes that all of us in the past produced with great, you know, uh, skill uh, and, and, and caution, but there they were. And so who has time to read that? We're living in a world which has become also very party political. So, you know, it sort of whether you like it or not, and you have to be very strong not to be drawn into this party political um, trenches, if you like, that have been formed. Um, what is very worrying is also that the discourse, the illiberal discourse, the populist discourse, is gaining more and more traction um, for many, many reasons, because they have a simple message. So I think for us as well, not only do we have to be passionate and, and emotional, we actually have to simplify. 
Now, that's very difficult. I mean, I used to be a journalist before I became a think tanker. It's very difficult to simplify very, very complicated issues that face us. But uh, our, if I may say so, the other side is doing so. So it you know, makes it very, very important that we also try and, and simplify. And you know, the public is confused. It's confused by all the different messages from all the different social media and mainstream media. TV is still a very powerful tool uh, that they're getting. So we need to, we need to um, ease that confusion. Uh, and also, finally, it's a very noisy world. It's a world of insults and uh, offensive course discourse. And we need to also make sure that our, our, we don't fall into that trap. We need to be more uh, calm and silent when needed. But we need to sort of counter this noisy world. Now, third and final point really is, um, in order to do this and to meet the challenge, all of us think tanks, I think around the world, Matt, not just in Europe, we need to change uh, drastically. We need to change our, our composition. Um, whether we like it or not, we need to bring in, and this is, I think, uh, a song, a very close, something that I believe in, we need to bring in diversity, more diversity into our think tank. It's something that Corina Horst and I have talked about. It's not just about women, though, I have to say. For me, diversity also means bringing all the different strands of the European public, uh, the minorities, the religions, the, the colors of Europe that make Europe so vibrant into the think tank world. Often, I have to say to you with some, I have to say dismay, I'm the only brown person, the Muslim person, and the woman in a room. And, you know, it's fine. It's fine. I can deal with it. But it would be nice to have more succor and more support uh, there. And I think we need to, and why do I say that? It's not just because of the moral issue, Matt. It's also because if you don't um, have a think tank which is diverse and has all the different strands in it, you're only telling half the story. You're not getting all the right 360 degrees information that you need about the society, the politics of the world we live in. Um, and if you're only telling half the story, you're only building half the narrative of Europe. And at a time when all of us agree, I think, that Europe needs a new uh, sense of life, a new injection of energy and vigor, um, we really need to bring that total story into it. So um, I think uh, for the last few years, I would say about two or three years, what we have been trying at Friends of Europe, and I think it's true for all think tanks, is to change the way we look at it, to become more engaged, to use social media in a more powerful emotional way. And my final word would be, um, in this world we live in, we dare, we have to, have to dare to be bold. We have to move beyond the group think. And we have to think sometimes the unthinkable. Because if we don't, that's what happened with Brexit. So many of us didn't think the unthinkable. That's what happened with Donald Trump. We didn't think about it. We weren't prepared for it. So um, with, the, with that, I'll, I'll end my, I think, 10 minutes that you gave me. But it is a very exciting time. I have to say, it's a time for people who think alike to come together and work together. And for that point of view, from that point of view, I'm actually quite uh, upbeat and optimistic at the moment. Thank you. Uh, I will. <coughs> I will also have like three chapters in my speech. Uh, like as uh, I've mentioned, uh, like we are slightly and still outsiders here. I hope that I will be not so old when we will be insiders, like the part of the European Union, as uh, citizens of different countries present here are. Uh, so 
I will start with, with Ukrainian situation and landscape, uh, especially after Euromaidan, the, like brought like the sort of uh, the sort of uh, second breath for the Ukrainian think tanks. So the new generation of think tanks appeared after Euromaidan, and like. If if we look on like last year's report of the University of Pennsylvania's think tank project, like they speak about mission and market. So for us, uh, the mission and market was very clear. And I'm the part of this group as uh, our think tank was founded uh, just uh, less than three years ago in 2015. So like uh, the first was serving needs for new better policies, and uh, the second one was closing gaps in the media landscape. Uh, <coughs> colleagues speak about like competition between think tanks and media in, to some extent in Ukraine. Uh, media landscape uh, was and still is uh, very weak, like with uh, uh, rather weak traditional media, practically no printed media, quality printed media, and even uh, yellow printed media as well. Uh, so sometimes even like closing gaps on the media landscape, covering needs for any policy analysis in the absence of the professional civil service. Uh, like generations of politicians uh, in last uh, 15 years, like before Euromaidan, practically destroyed uh, like some weak but still uh, like existing civil service civil service civil servants of uh, 90s so when uh, <laughs> when the new people came to the government after 2014 they found that sh there are no people they could rely on in the government like no policy analysts uh, working for the government so in this case independent groups uh, became like quasi uh, like quasi-governmental analysts, not because like government wanted to put them under their control, but because the government just needed any policy analysis and any policy advice of reasonable quality. Uh, like when we look on the same like M's uh, from from last year's report, like money. So the money uh, like seen is more or less traditional like for for post-communist countries with uh, traditional international donors like USAID, European Union, uh, Swiss, uh, Sweden's uh, International Development Agency, but also private donors. And for example, uh, the think tank I'm the head of uh, is. Uh, uh, in the first two years, it was practically like 100% financed by uh, by the largest investment bank in Ukraine, like invest in fact not investment bank, but like the CEO and majority owner of uh, this investment bank, who is in fact Czech national, uh, but but living in Ukraine for 20 years, uh, and. Like this type of donors uh, became uh, very active uh, in the last three years as well, but also like crowdfunding, like the stories. So like if anybody of you followed Ukrainian events, especially during the hot phase of war with Russia uh, in 2014-2015, like you heard about stories of uh, volunteerism when people helped the army, uh, crowdfund as they were crowdfunding, and like the same continued also to support some think tank activities. Um, in the same st story of M's from this uni University of Pennsylvania story, um, like we have manpower, like another M. And like in Ukraine, it was a desert in Yanukovych times when um, like there was practically no chance to influence the government in any 
reasonable way and uh, like people left of already not so strong Xinjiang industry plus uh, we had no and still have practically no university research tradition uh, in the Soviet Union like there was separate uh, like there were universities and scientific institutions were separate institutions universities were just for teaching and uh, scientific institutions were just for doing science and uh, which resulted in lack, complete lack of new blood in this uh, old scientific institutions that became completely irrelevant. So here we speak about our relevance and we still hope to be relevant, but in this case in the, of uh, post-Soviet scientific institutions, they have no chance to be relevant. Uh, so the only chance we had to attract manpower was to get inflow from business in 2014-2015. For example, in our Xinjiang, practically all employees came from private business. Uh, and um, now we have another like challenge as uh, like Ukraine, help in Ukraine became rather fashionable with donors, and uh, they're uh, paying uh, high salaries to. To analysts and like overheating this market, which means uh, like uh, leak of people to technical assistance projects and migration from Ukraine sometime. So, uh, like the second part of, of, of my story for today is uh, like this new generation of think tanks after Euromaidan, in fact, were born digital and networked. So, uh, when we were founded in 2015, like there was no, while I had um, an experience working for the think tank for five years, uh, 20 years ago, but uh, I, like we discussed it with Matt uh, during the lunch, and uh, like th there was even not a question for me to have or not to have the paper version of our products because we understood that there will be no reason to, to have this. On another side, Facebook uh, was a very um, important communication tool during the Euromaidan revolution, and it is still very important for the new establishment. Like for the, like for those of you of you who, who do not know this fact, like in fact Euromaidan started from the Facebook post of uh, one of the prominent journalists and civil uh, society activists who now is in the parliament uh, and uh, especially in first two years after Euromaidan, it was a very uh, interesting case, like I believe that Ukrainian Facebook is very different from Facebooks of uh, uh, all countries present here because it is very politicized uh, like now it is more and more like media platform with uh, fake news, with uh, bots, bot networks, like all this uh, stuff that you could uh, um, mainly imagine in the Russian context, but like Ukraine is still very close to Russia and uh, very easy to take exper bad experience from the neighbor. <clears throat> but in the first, especially in 2014, 2015, even 2016, Facebook uh, was a very and still continuing to be a very important uh, platform for policy debates. Uh, like well, I even made the screenshot for one of presentations when uh, like Deputy Minister of Economy, Deputy Head of Presidential Administration, uh, three MPs, uh, Deputy CEO of the state-owned um, gas production company, and multiple uh, like independent analysts uh, like I am, uh, were discussing uh, the draft law on uh, energy regulator in a Facebook thread. 
So, uh, like, not having a round table or some, like, formal debates. And it was practically in the middle of the night. It was something around 11 p.m. Uh, so, so it is rather like strange situation, but it meant that we we had to work with social media uh, from the very beginning. So, and we had no legacy of old communication tools like long reports that are important, but we uh, like if you have legacy, like legacy uh, takes your hand and brings you to the past. But if you have no legacy, it is slightly easier. Uh, and. Um, some expert groups in Ukraine are, in fact, closer to media than to think tanks. Like, for example, I recommend any of you uh, who are interested looking on Vox Ukraine uh, website, uh, which has a very strong uh, English language uh, version because uh, it was, in fact, founded by Ukrainians who uh, went to uh, international universities. And then, like, when the situation in Ukraine became very... Um, uh, like very tough and like uh, the revolution happened, they uh, spent a lot of efforts to help the country. Some somebody even returned to Ukraine to work for the government, etc. So this platform is very interesting. Like my my colleague and executive director of uh, the organization that manages it is in fact journalist. Like he, he was an editor of uh, of the mag of the business magazine before. Uh, Old think tanks that we really had uh, from 90s had to adapt, like some did it better. Uh, and here I should say a very big thank you to the Swedish government that has a very strong program of supporting think tanks in Ukraine. And they uh, spent a lot of resources on, hel on helping uh, those think tanks who wanted to do it to adapt to new realities. Like, for example, like one of the strongest think tanks in Ukraine that specialized in public opinion is managed by a lady who is something like 65 years old, but still it has a very strong social media presence and very strong communications because uh, they use this opportunity and they became they are continuing to be very relevant while maintaining uh, data from uh, the last 25 years uh, but still like there are very traditional techniques of getting heard especially like in this new environment when uh, like policy advice is needed so so still direct communication and serving the needs of stakeholders sometimes uh, I believe that it is even like the situation is better, especially with those people who are interested in uh, pushing for reforms, uh, even uh, for like their cynical political reasons. Uh, it is uh, it is even easier than in a well-established democracies. Like for example. When I was flying uh, to Brussels, I received email that I am invited to the Prime Minister for uh, for the meeting tomorrow. Like I don't know, I still do not know what what I will discuss with him, but uh, and what will be the circle of people. But it is really usual for Ukraine for, for, for Ukrainian think tank people to go to meetings to Prime Minister, sometimes to the President. So which is uh, like this old tools. I believe they will be still very relevant. Like we are still people, and we are still we still like and the trust and personal communications. Uh, and um, 
what what is really the biggest challenge is communication to the general public. I believe that uh, that we need to do this communication to the general public. Like our founders believe in it. Like one of our co-founders is Ivan Miklos, for, former Slovakian vice prime minister and minister of finance. He started from the very beginning advising us to have this communication to the general public to be, in fact, like not a think tank. He called it policy action tank, and. Uh, it requires skills and like skills of speaking to speaking on uh, uh, TV talk shows. So sometimes discussing uh, with a very well-trained populace, uh, but also it requires very good understanding of the audiences. Like in fact, like very good media analysis. Like in Ukraine, it is sometimes complicated because like our key TV channels are controlled by oligarchs. Like as I told you previously, like no printed media, uh, practically no printed media, and uh, like many organizations still have no resources for it. Like because of usual reasons for think tanks worldwide, like uh, donor project funding, like traditional communication tools that are liked by donors, like conferences, etc. So, uh, like, but there are very interesting cases that are very successful. Like one, uh, one I, I, I want to mention is anti-corruption action center, which is in, something in between like advocacy group and uh, a think tank. Like it's uh, had uh, is so uh, influential in Ukraine. Like for example, he has eighty thousand followers on Facebook. Uh, like this uh, group slash think tank have has separate Twitter accounts in Ukrainian and in English for like international partners. Like he personally, Vitaly Shabunin, he is so important that like in fact government now is like authorities I could say not like cabinet of ministers uh, are organizing campaign against him, like trying to harass him to organize to fabricate criminal charges against him. So like some small scale of like Navalny case. Uh, in uh, in Ukraine, but he's not a politician. Like he's uh, he's a civil activist. So they have beautifully crafted uh, posts on Facebook. Uh, they have uh, yeah 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 yeah. But they still have direct liaison with international partners like NIMF. And uh, uh, like also, we have a very strong coalition of the NGOs called Reanimation Package of Reforms that organizes. AG uh, NGOs, mostly think tanks, uh, which is, which was founded in 2014, which is organized in expert groups, and in fact, this is like the sort of mouthpiece of peer-reviewed policy ideas. So, like, finally, uh, like, so we are right, like, we found ourselves right in the midst of global challenges. So, uh, in 2016, we understand that we need like a new sense of purpose with less direct influence on the government because like it became less reformist, but uh, and more technical assistance uh, received by the government for policy analysis. So we we were focusing on communication to the general public, on fighting populism, and on making pressure on the government. So how to do this? Like final points. Uh, so the first is segmentation of the audience. I worked in market research for. Uh, 12 years, so so I could speak about it in detail. I will not do it now, but like generally. So we understand that there are decision makers, we understand that there are opinion leaders and media, and we understand there are that there, are, there is general public with different groups of general public. And like so so we need uh, second point to do a very good media planning. 
Uh, we have owned media, which uh, which is social media. Uh, we do have inclusion personal pages of our key experts, which is very important due to this uh, uh, constantly changing algorithms of Facebook, for example, that prefers personally produced content to pages, and which means that like if 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 you are uh, developing your personal you know, web Facebook pages, especially in those countries where Facebook is very is very important in policy debate. Uh, like you, you need to develop like personal Facebook pages for your key experts. Um, website, yes, newsletters still very important and uh, like still working rather well in Ukraine. Like very interesting to hear about experience of uh, of the colleagues. Uh, like. Even messengers, like in Ukraine, I don't know, is, is, is it fashionable in uh, other countries uh, here as well, but like, for example, Telegram is used uh, by many expert groups to promote uh, the content, like as a sort of like, of those uh, for those of you who remember, RSS feed, like it is close to RSS feed sometimes, to Twitter, like just communication messages. So owned media, then acquired media, like blogs, columns, uh, uh, comments on TV and in other media, but also like maybe paid media, like, which is a question for us, like uh, should we sponsor our content on Facebook, like what will be, how it will be considered by our audience. So then uh, the third, uh, how to understand value for money, like how to understand the size of the audience, the quality of the audience, like where influencers are uh, to the larger extent. If we want to uh, have our opinion heard by the general public via influencers, like people who are opinion leaders, uh, plus editorial policies, where editorial policies are uh, giving us a higher chance to promote our ideas. And the final force, so like in fact we need the media mix like some FMCG companies have. So which means that we need a lot of analysis. We need to understand needs and the channels that are the most uh, easy to use by our customers. We, and in fact, like we need to understand our audience as a mix of very small groups. Uh, each of uh, these groups has its own uh, needs and channels and uh, it is not so straightforward, so there is no silver bullet, unfortunately. Thank you. Thank you. No silver bullet. Um, okay, I have want to expand a little bit on what you've both said before we move to questions from the audience. And thank you for all of you who submitted questions beforehand. I mean, if you have some feedback on how that goes, that's, a, that's an experiment for us. And hopefully we'll also take some questions from Twitter. So, Shada, you talked about emotion, passion, and conviction. Um, it's almost as if you want um, think tank experts to develop personalities. <laughs> um, how how does that interact with, it, with 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 our old model of you know trust me I'm a doctor of <laughs> economics um, you know how 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 does that work and 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 does it, is will our messages um, inside the research be negated if they're full of emotion, passion, and conviction? So does emotion, passion, and conviction come in the communication? Or should it also be part of how we do our research now? Um, yeah, so I think it, we have to develop, I think everything tank, whether we acknowledge it or not, does have a personality. I mean, when each of us here in Brussels, for instance, are known for something that we're really good at. And I think that is the personality of our think tank. Uh, so, and what we produce, um, 
in a sense, uh, I used to be a journalist, and I think a lot of the work I'm doing now is very similar to what I did as a columnist. Mm -hmm. I mean, you talked okay. about the media yep. here, and I think you know it's right to engage with the media, but in many ways, I, I'm, I confess as a former journalist, today's media is, I think, abdicating some of its responsibility in terms of asking the right questions. You see it on the BBC all the time, you know, when uh, certain people are interviewed, uh, the, the, the questions just aren't the ones that we would like to hear put to these people, especially the populists, the Farages, and, and, and Trumps of this world. Those questions aren't being put by journalists at the moment. I feel very, very bad about that. And I think it's part of our job now as think tankers uh, to take up our, I was going to say take up our pens, <laughs> to bring out our, our, our iPads, etc., and in a sense do the work that um, good journalists should be doing. I see very much that, asking the right questions, going to the right people, um, asking embarrassing questions. I think all of this will only matter, and seriously, is if we've done the research. So you can't go uh, against that. I mean, you need to have the, the well-done research, the facts, and the figures. But um, putting them out in, like we did in the past, saying, you know, this is this and this will be convinced other people. You saw that. There's alternative facts out there. I mean, you know, those don't matter. We have to keep our ethics very much so. So if, but I think it's the communication style that needs to uh, change a little bit. Whether it's on uh, social media, television, Hilip said, you know, engaging with the media, or whether it's just in the, in, in the, in the things we write ourselves, mm -hmm. we have to engage more. Um, otherwise, we're going to lose the battle. And I think, sadly, we already are losing the battle a little bit. So this is something that I think all of the think tanks, I mean, academics really can't do it. This is why we're not really academics, are we? Um, academics can't abandon their, their, their work, their style, but we are supposed to be, aren't we, midway between academia and journalism. And I think we need to occupy that space in a more sort of uh, self-confident and, if I may use the word, colorful, colorful way. Mm -hmm. Okay, colorful, okay. That, that's also a challenge. <laughs> um, Hilib, you just described there how you got invited by the Prime Minister to go and see presumably him tomorrow. Um, that, kind of, that kind of access and those kind of invitations are something that Shada and I would die for, <laughs> or rather kill for. Um, um, and yet your focus was very much also on, uh, on, on, on a segmented audience. I mean, which, which is more important in the Ukrainian context? Or are they, you know, is it the fact that because there's so little expertise or professionalism inside government that you have this access to government, or, or, or is the work that you do with your segmented audience more important or more effective? I believe that our government uh, is, to a large extent, uh, uh, it is very similar to us uh, in, uh, in like being born digital. Like this, after like post Euromaidan governments, they understand like the same things, and their communication people understand the same things we understand. Which means that uh, like sometimes they use you as uh, like this sort of influencer, like the sort of friend, because in a very uh, like dispersed uh, and unclear political landscape in Ukraine, like. As uh, as many stakeholders uh, you involve in uh, like supporting you, uh, as successful like you will be, 
and uh, it means that uh, like when when prime minister invites us uh, it is uh, to one extent like listening to our ideas but on another on another like to another extent it is just like building relationship and building his political support uh, so uh, and certainly like Unfortunately, I could say, it is mostly with people who are more, more or less similar in terms of uh, at least ethical standards. Like I could discuss with our prime minister, like should land market be open uh, more fast or more slow? Like he will prefer slower because it is more popular with general public. Uh, but uh, like still, um, still we have more or less the same ethical platform and uh, uh, like general uh, like vision of economic policies. Uh, so uh, we we see that uh, it, it will, uh, like it, it is absolutely needed to work with the general public because uh, otherwise, uh, uh, otherwise like uh, our ideas will be useful, will be useless for, for even those politicians with whom we do have uh, good relationship because they will as they they are weak like in this uh, like post euro maidan period like and currently governments are weak i believe that in most of countries in the european uh, union uh, like governments are rather weak mm -hmm. i could say and uh, everybody needs support of as much stakeholders as possible and everybody are looking on a daily basis on uh, opinion polls and those who are smarter are looking on uh, not just uh, opinion polls on which they could see like uh, the level of political support but uh, like they are looking on support of different policies like the new tool we are currently uh, promoting like we did like the first phase with the help of, che of the Czech government funding last year uh, was a very detailed opinion survey on five reforms that were in the pipeline for the government for the uh, autumn of last year. And it was really very interesting. I don't know to which extent is it usual for think tanks in Western Europe to work this way. Uh, because in many cases, like these debates uh, uh, of like, popul like popular policies against unpopular policies are in fact debates about names, name of like labor reform or like um, migration reform or some other reform. But like what we saw in Ukraine was such like, for example, people uh, could be against uh, the name of, uh, for example, healthcare reform. But like if you speak about the components of this reform, people are for these components. And it was like, uh, so attitude to the reform generally is a political question, but attitude to reform and of attitude to policy itself is a very normal personal question, like as everybody have, uh, uh, has their, have its own experience with healthcare system and could answer, like, will it be better or, or worse for them if something changes here? So I believe that it, is, it could be rather important for think tanks to look more uh, on public opinion and uh, to, like, try to, to build the bridge between uh, policy analysis and uh, opinion research. Apply to the work of Friends of Europe in your own work, do you now feel that you need to build some kind of momentum with the general public to support the the policy uh, agenda that you put forward? 
absolutely. So I don't know how many of you know Debating Europe, which is a very, very active arm of Friends of Europe. So Debating Europe is an online chat uh, platform, and it's for, if I may use the word, ordinary citizens. It's for citizens, students, and they engage with policymakers. So we, for instance, at the moment, we have ongoing and an ongoing debate with the European Ombudsman, Emily O'Reilly, whereby citizens put in their questions, and then Emily uh, responds to them online. So we've really made, this has been going on now for about five years, debating mm -hmm. Europe. Um, and that's a very, very close uh, engagement with citizens. Uh, also, of course, you know, we are trying very hard to be, so when we have our conferences, just like you do, um, Matt, we also try, we use our live tweets, we engage as much as we can um, with, with the, the general public. Because in this period of European revival, if I could say so, or efforts at European revival, we really need to have a wider discourse. And also, just like you and, and Libya, you know, when we can, we, as members of the think tank, we go out and speak to students, you know, to, uh, we speak to anyone who wants to, to engage with us. We do go out of our offices, and that's part of our job, uh, to be on TV, to talk to everyone, to engage, to engage, to engage. And I think, you know, you said... Uh, I love it. You said, trust me, I'm a doctor. Mm. Trust me, I'm a think tanker. I think, you know, to get that trust uh, at a t period where there's such mistrust or distrust of anyone in power uh, is, is, is a key, key challenge. And I think that is what we have to say. My final point, if I could just say, you know, we, um, I was reading somewhere and I thought really, really spoke to me, if I may say, said numbers are important, but numbers don't have emotion. Stories. It's, it's how you convert those numbers into stories, into, into uh, tales of narratives. That's what really counts. And I think, you know, I wasn't born in Europe, but for me, the European story is such a fantastic story. It really, really resonates deep, deep inside. And, and I think, you know, if we could have stories about Europe at this very important time, we would be able to uh, communicate in a, in a stronger fashion with those who are absolutely disaffected or just, you know, um, bored. Don't make it tedious, you know. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you really think, you know, that's what uh, Trump has done. He's made things more, um, less tedious, less boring um, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that has woken us up, you know. So I, I think, you know, if we can bring that emotional connection into things we do, we all do it. Uh, I think it's just very, very essential now. It's a compelling uh, necessity now. Okay, so let's engage in some of that engagement with you. Um, is uh, Christine Priol here? Yes, Christine. So we have been addressing um, some of your questions. Um, having listened to that, do you want to reframe your question? And and are you? Can you answer your own question? You know, what, what is it that makes us authoritative and are we communicating well enough? And um, there's a microphone there. We've, we've covered it, okay, all right. Um, Shada talked about um, ethics and obviously these are very important in your, um, uh, in your space. And we have a question uh, from Marta. Marta, I can't say your last name. Are you in the audience? Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, okay. Thank you, first of all, for um, giving me the opportunity to speak. Um, for me, when I think about the disruptions, um, I think very strongly about the changes, the 
the social changes and how knowledge is used and how it's uh, uh, interpreted, spread, etc. And uh, well, my observation is that um, we deal what we now deal with are very polarized communities of knowledge and communities of trusted knowledge that comes from certain sources. Um, and, um, and for me, in that puzzle, um, facts can really become weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, and because we have such diversity of facts, diversity of experts, different uncertainties and uh, incoherences, we basically can, can weaponize uh, mm -hmm. any group with some version of a truth, not necessarily black and white, you're right, I'm wrong, um, etc. Um, and in that, um, it seems to me that in that, uh, in, in that um, landscape, it will make sense for think tanks to be the ones, as you sort of mentioned when it came to the, uh, to the role of, sort of media-like role of think tanks, that think tanks could be uh, spaces which uh, bring various uh, voices together, which create some space for, for debate, which is, um, which is no longer the, uh, the tribal debate of a given, of a given community. Um, but then my question is, um, what about uh, what about partiality and impartiality mm -hmm. when it comes to think tanks? Mm -hmm. Obviously, we have quite obvious um, uh, examples when we have party think tanks. Mm -hmm. There, you, you know what their lines are. But what about um, what about other think tanks which also have some kind of an agenda? Um, it's not necessarily a question that one is uh, more right than the other. And uh, how do we deal with 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 that issue? Thank you. So if I can, so the, the question is basically about polarization. Is, is, should think tanks be a space where, and should we have a responsibility to bring parties together? Um, how do we engage in debate that isn't tribal? And, and really fantastic question. Um, I don't know is the answer, but maybe these two do. Um, and then impartiality. I mean, this is a very, uh, that's a very interesting um, uh, situation to be. So do, let me, impartiality, are you impartial? Because I think that in your communications, would you call yourself impartial? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, we, we will have uh, the specific uh, clause in our statutes that we, uh, we are not favoring any political party or political leader. Right. Um, but well, not, not favoring one political party or political leader, is one thing, but that's but 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 not necessarily being impartial. But I mean, in perhaps let me rephrase the question: um, Is it difficult for you to engage in debates that aren't polarized? Uh, like in Ukraine, it is a very high polarization. It is slightly different between, uh, like, slightly different from like what uh, what is going on in uh, like Western Europe or United States, but. Uh, it's just polarization. I looked on my smartphone to correctly translate it into English. Uh, in Ukraine, there are like hashtags Zrada and Peremoha, where Zrada is treason and uh, Peremoha is victory. So, like, and uh, for, and this is like this post Euromaidan uh, thing that, uh, like, all uh, policies, decisions, uh, uh, events are classified into either treason or victory. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so, so I believe that this polarization is really a global trend. Like in in each country, it has its own uh, way of uh, uh, 
like the way how it looks like. But uh, I believe that this is a unique place for us to be, in fact, in between like this treason and victory. And uh, I believe that also it is uh, like creating respect to us uh, as uh, people. Emotionally, it is very easy to stick to either treason, especially to treason. Victory, it is not so easy to stick. Uh, usually, and uh, but like still, uh, it is much like both positions are easier than to be somewhere in between. And uh, but on another side, like people understand that uh, uh, everything in the life could not be classified into these two categories. So when they when they hear uh, a thoughtful voice of people who say that, like uh, this is closer to treason, but this is closer to victory. And uh, like this guy, for example, the same prime minister, like sometimes doing things that are closer to this and sometimes doing things that are closer to that, but which it doesn't mean that he is completely wrong or completely right. And in this policy, like you have 80% of good things and 20% of not so good things, let's hope which will be slightly changed uh, in the nearest future. So, uh, so, so I believe that, that like, in terms of this polarization, there is a unique space for us that we should use. In terms of impartiality, like, it, it could be more complicated. Like, for example, I was raised in the as an economist in the tradition of, uh, uh, and, and plus as a person in the tradition of like democracy movements of uh, end of uh, ages and like uh, this so-called Washington Consensus of uh, of the same period, and this is uh, it is not very easy for for me to listen about uh, new industrialist policies, uh, uh, more control over um, over people, and uh, uh, giving them less freedom because it will be better for the, for, for them. So, so I I understand that sometimes I'm deep in uh, when listening to these arguments, but uh, I don't know how to deal with it. <laughs> Shana, I and I my. I was interpreting your opening remarks as that there is a battle, um, a two-sided fight, liberal versus illiberal, um, in, in, in which you've kind of captured the, that polarization. Um, do you want to expand? <laughs> I mean, do you want to yeah. come back on that? Yeah, I don't like uh, binary sort of choices, and you know, you're with us or outside us, or you're with us or against us, you know, that kind of thing. I don't like it. Um, I, I think there is always a middle ground to be found. And I think one of the things that we do have to try, despite taking a passionate position, which is pro-liberal, pro-tolerance, pro-open societies, do try and engage with uh, people who disagree. The problem we have is many of the people who disagree don't want to engage with us. And what we have decided is we want to engage with you, but we will question you. So Gatewilders or whoever, if you're going to come to a Friends of Europe uh, event, first of all, we don't want to engage with racists. But OK, let's say that non-racist illiberals, if such a thing is there. <laughs> if you come, um, you must be ready to answer questions. We are not going to give, just give you a platform for you to spread your hate and say, you, need, you will have to take questions. We say that to practically, I think, everyone, except perhaps, you know, I don't know, but basically anyone who comes has to engage. The second th thing is that, um, yeah, so they don't want to, and I think that shows 
uh, their feet of clay. Because, I mean, if you have such strong opinions, you should be able to then defend them in, a, in, a, in an argument, which is why they love television, because many of the television journalists just don't do their job. I come back to that. Um, about the partiality, impartiality, I think just like Bruegel and Seps and EPC and others here in Brussels, we are impartial politically, so we're obviously nonpartisan. Makes us quite different from American think tanks. Um, also makes us uh, uh, more difficult and more challenging to find uh, the right sort of financing for us because we don't take sides in a political debate, but we do take sides, all of us, I think, for Europe. Uh, in all its different facets, you know. Uh, so I think that is something that we always say. We are pro-European. We're not necessarily close to the EU institutions. We're all very critical of the EU institutions when we need to be, uh, but we engage with them. And uh, I think more and more, um, they engage with us as well. And I think this is something that perhaps we should highlight about Brussels, is that there is more uh, of a uh, two-way street discussion going on between think tanks and, and policymakers here. So I think, you know, we, I do agree with you, and I think that was a fantastic sort of tribal culture that we're developing. Well, we're trying to break out of it, but it takes two, as everyone here in Brussels keeps saying, it takes two to tango, right? You do tango, don't you? I do. Yeah. Um, uh, every morning. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm very happy to hear, actually, that, that you know, this, this moving on from the old question in the old days, and I'm sure Shadow will agree with me, it was all about independence. Are you independent as a think tank? And it was a nonsense. Independent of what? Um, and, and, and I'm glad that we're moving on to um, a more sophisticated debate about that, which is about impartiality. Um, impartiality with passion, uh, Shada. Um, because recognizing that, um, that, that, that none of us are independent, but the question isn't whether you're totally independent, but the question is, are you independent enough to carry out your mission? Are you independent enough to, uh, to bring a valuable contribution to, um, uh, to the policy-making community? Um, are you independent enough to occupy a legitimate part um, uh, of what is essentially a democratic process? I think those are much more interesting. And now this partiality and impartiality, very sophisticated. I would argue that we try to be impartial, but of course the, the facts, the evidence are going to lead you uh, to a partial opinion, um, I think how you communicate that though is is is, is the key. Um, so um, uh, thank you for that. So let's um, uh, move on to um, a, a related topic. Um, Thomas Schneider, is he here? No. Okay. So Thomas was basically going to ask a question about how do we how do we insert insert facts? How do we use facts? Um, uh, in, 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 in what is um, essentially going to be a very um, uh, passionate debate um, where, I guess where, where I'm going with this is, you know, do we have a responsibility as institutions whose bread and butter is evidence and facts, and I prefer the word evidence to facts mm -hmm. because facts change, uh, believe it or not, and uh, do we have a responsibility to counter um, false evidence, um, uh, fake news. Um, uh, is there a, a responsibility for us? And why would it be our responsibility as organizations that were initially set up um, to, you know, to be an aid to policymakers? Perhaps you'd like to take the first. Uh, 
which is not a speciality of our think tank, but like we have our neighbors in the same building. Uh, this platform I showed previously, Vox Ukraine, they have a special project, Vox Check, uh, where they have a dedicated team of fact checkers. And uh, it is, uh, I believe, like the new, uh, like the new breed of organizations uh, throughout the world. And uh, it's good that we have uh, one of these organizations in Ukraine. And uh, like they are uh, doing it uh, full time. And uh, they are becoming rather, uh, I could say, influential in uh, making pressure on politicians. As, uh, as they are, like as I told you, the organization is headed by the journalist, uh, like the head of this project is journalist, is former journalist as well, of this uh, fact-checking project, and uh, which means that they know media landscape very well, and if they say that, for example, the head of this political party uh, in some given period or on some specific issue uh, spoke 80% uh, of lies and uh, this political leader spoke only 20% of lies, it, it was really having an impact. And like what I heard from them is, uh, uh, is that those politicians are already trying to reach them and to have some influence on their work, to discuss uh, their findings, etc. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really very important if it is, uh, if it is organized well in terms of uh, like media communications. So, do we have a responsibility in the process bubble to be countering <coughs> fake news? Well, absolutely. I think you know there's plenty of evidence there to counter. Let's just take this very emotional and toxic debate on immigration and Islam, Islamophobia, whatever you want to call it. There are so many facts uh, available that counter this diatribes and this uh, bashing that we get. The fact is those facts are hidden in reports, whether it's the Fundamental Rights Agency, whether it's the UNHCR, whether it's uh, Amnesty, you know, those reports, those facts and figures that counter the fake news, the alternative facts and, and lies uh, that are out there are there. So it is, and you know, we do our own research as well, but what I'm saying is those facts are there, but they're, they're really hidden jewels in massive reports. And I think one of the things that we, as I said, build a story, a counter-narrative, if you like, though I prefer to call it a more positively a proactive narrative, but using the evidence and the facts that are there, but that somehow our politicians, which are enamored of the far-right narrative because they think it brings them votes, but Macron, I think, has proven that it doesn't always do that. Um, you know, they don't use it. So I think that's something that I think, but evidence uh, in its own needs to come with a, with, with, a, with a frame around it, a context around it. The other thing I'll just say to you is also, um, Matt, I think very important for think tanks, because the journalists, once again, aren't doing it. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a sort of tendency everywhere to go to the extremists. When something happens, you polarize. You know, you talk to the right and the extreme right and the extreme left, or what I'm saying, you know. Um, and, and you forget that there are people in the middle or that there are stories out there of interesting men and women who have made it uh, with, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a narrative of tolerance and openness and, and inclus inclusiveness, and we don't talk to them. And I think it's, it's our duty 
frankly, to our societies to bring out those people. I'm just giving you an, uh, an example, right? Uh, Jesse Claver in the Netherlands, Green Links, during the awful um, election campaign where everything was nasty, 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 that man had, had a story that was a very, very inclusive story, a fantastic story. Um, did anyone in the, in the, in the Anglo-Saxon, the English-speaking globalist press uh, ever, ever interview him? Only Amanpour did it after he made uh, a breakthrough in, in, in the Green Links. Same thing happened with Macron. Macron, Marine Le Pen, excuse me, was getting much more airtime uh, than, than um, Emmanuel Macron was getting in the run-up to the election. So, you know, those people, the, the, there are stories out there. There are politicians out there, out there in Germany at the moment, you know, interesting young men and women. We don't bring them up into the, into the limelight, into the spotlight. I think that's part of our job is to actually bring the success stories, the passionate people, the people who are making a difference onto our, our stage. We have a valuable uh, asset there, you know, in, in, in giving them more a space than they have. Um, one of the discussions, debates that we're having here, that was, having in, uh, that was happening in India this morning, um, was saying that there's a role for think tanks to play back up to advocacy organizations. I mean, is, is, is that what you're saying when we need to highlight the stories that the press doesn't take up um, or, uh, or, or, or promote the facts that gem, the gems that are lost in, in, in reports? I don't like to talk about think tanks as being advocacy groups because advocacy for me is a narrow tunnel. You know, it, it, it's about, okay, it's about the environment, it's about climate change, it's about human rights. You know, it's, it's silos, and that's what advocacy groups are good at, and that's, you know, that's what they should be doing. I think we have a broader agenda, and we have a more um, amorphous agenda, a more diffused agenda. Uh, if I say we're pro-European, we're not just working on issues to do with green energy, we're also talking about development policy, just like you are, you know, different things. So I, I, I don't like being uh, compared to an advocacy group. Uh, I think ours is a broader, uh, more, more strategic, if you mm -hmm. like, agenda. Then they're very valuable, but more uh, focused uh, approach. And in your work, do you work with advocacy groups? Yeah, maybe like it is. Uh, the, the, there are still differences between like developed and developing countries in this context, because uh, like for me, like this India, Indian uh, way is. Uh, easier to understand. Like uh, I mentioned this anti-corruption organization which is very strong, which is closer to advocacy groups and to the think tank in fact. Uh, and currently we share like the common vision with this in fact which is one of, which is the strongest of the groups but it is a really very strong anti-corruption movement in Ukraine consisting of different NGOs. Uh, and currently we have like number one uh, policy decision to be made is uh, like uh, building the final block of anti-corruption vertical, mm -hmm. which currently is uh, anti-corruption, um, National Anti-Corruption Bureau, special prosecutor, and uh, like finally we need to build anti-corruption court. And after this, uh, like this post-Soviet system of impunity uh, will really have a chance to be destroyed. And uh, but. When it is still in place, it prevents uh, economic growth because uh, it, sh it could result in uh, uh, losing property rights. Uh, 
uh, because of corruption. It could result in uh, racketeering. It could re result in raider attacks. So we understand, and and like people in the government also understands that, like without uh, like changing this system, that could uh, uh, that is in fact prevention investment. Uh, we could not have uh, much faster economic growth and we could not get uh, higher, better well-being for Ukrainians. While it is not an economic policy, it is uh, in fact the policy related to judiciary and to the rule of law. And in this case, it means that really like we are uh, uh, like the sort of the singing in the background uh, to those people who are uh, who are promoting, who are advocating uh, this anti-corruption actions, like building uh, this final stone in this anti-corruption vertical. And for example, one of the uh, one of the last opinion pieces I wrote was uh, what will be the consequences of not creating this anti-corruption court, which is currently the key conditionality in the IMF program for Ukraine, which will be the consequences for the uh, financial situation, for uh, for Ukrainian national currency, for uh, inflation, and uh, each, uh, what, what will be the price uh, that we will pay in terms of, for example, additional expenses on uh, servicing um, the public debt of Ukraine. So in, in, in Ukraine, it works... Uh, in, I don't know, like, especially like exact context of uh, like Indian uh, cooperation between think tanks and advocacy groups, but in Ukraine it works sometimes in this way as well. Um, we've had some response on Twitter to what we're talking about. Yeah. I'm very happy to say. Um, uh, so the question is: Besides polarization, isn't there a risk of atomization amongst think tanks, um, becoming too granular, too siloed? I mean. I don't see that happening here in Brussels. Right. It may be the case in uh, in many countries outside where they are more focused on specific topics, etc. And I think India is a case where people are working on urbanization. You know, there's specialized think tanks on clean energy, uh, urbanization, things like that. But here in Brussels, I don't think that is very much the case. That tends to be done by not think tanks, but organizations. Uh, uh, together. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning also is that think tanks, we have networks, right? Yes. I mean, it's very interesting actually. Uh, we work, as you do, with think tanks in India, in China, in Japan, uh, in Russia, you know, and that is a community where, you know, you were talking about tribal and polarization, etc. And sometimes track two, which is, which is what it's called really, track two discussions, uh, take the place of uh, when, when, say, um, just to give you an example from when I was born, India and Pakistan are actually at loggerheads, not talking to each other, almost on the point of war, always a heartbeat away from war. Uh, the think tank communities actually talk to each other all the time and, uh, and, and, and make headway. China and Taiwan, think tanks are working together, Korea and China, Japan. And I think these, this is a very, I mean, it's often misunderestimated, yeah. uh, as our American friends would say, but it's a very valuable part of our think tank communities that we actually have these exchange programs um, that, that I think foster understanding, a lot of disagreements, a lot of arguments, but we talk to each other and uh, keeps communities close together. I think academics do that too, but it's, it's, I think this is more vivacious, uh, our, our dialogues, and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, in all facets, we've, we've had one here as well. Yeah. You and I have even 
been on a panel where we've organized something together. Exactly. Um, I'm sorry, sorry, but not sorry to ask um, and the question, you know, do you talk to Russian think tanks? Mm, we do not talk to Russian think tanks. I believe, uh, uh, I believe on this stage, uh, it is, uh, uh, it, like the situation is too hot. And uh, like I, 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 wait, no. wait, 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 no. The way the chairing goes is I will call on you in a second. Okay, you get you get to reply when he's finished. Okay, I could I could speak only on uh, on, on the, your experience. On, on, sure. On, on our on, on experience of, of our think tanks, uh, and those uh, I speak most often. But do you engage I, in any track two activities? Uh, with the Russian. With, with anybody, with, with anybody, any, with, with anybody. Like I, I, I wanted to comment on it. Uh, I uh, shortly mentioned it in my speech. Uh, like the coalition that we have, uh, with the strange name of reanimation package of reforms, as it was like after Euromaidan, and in fact for reanimation purposes, is in fact very good example. And like people are saying that it is uh, one of unique examples in the world of uh, liberal pro-European coalition of uh, NGOs and think tanks and uh, like currently it is funded by the European Commission like as a, by a grant and uh, it, it, it will it will be funded by s s Swedish government I believe starting from this year and the whole idea is that like in fact it was it is very uh, interesting for me to get uh, to get knowledge from uh, f from for Issues that I am not a specialist on, but that are just like that are very close to uh, to our speciality, like judiciary, like uh, for example, um, law enforcement agencies, uh, general human rights. So because because it helps to build a, a much wider picture and to understand what is influencing uh, the situation and. Uh, in most of the countries, uh, like these things, like these liberal policies, they go together. Like, for example, our closest neighbor in the West Poland, mm -hmm. like they started from uh, uh, like liberal things in uh, economy, uh, like pressing, uh, like putting pressure on foreign investment in some areas. Then they uh, they continued in the judiciary system. Uh, before they did some uh, something in another other areas of democratic institutions so and it means that uh, like we need to build coalitions uh, yeah. that are not so impartial although I think there's a difference between you know building coalitions and track two yeah. yes please now you get to say hopefully you, so tell us who you are and where you're from I'm absolutely happy. I'm from Russia my name is Andrei Bustitsky I'm the chair of uh, ah you asked a question earlier yes yeah. I said a question uh, um, uh, probably the main problem is just problem. the main problem is that uh, um, we have too many think tanks because uh, no no seriously we have okay. a lot of conversation between Russian and Ukrainian think tanks and I, I, I absolutely agree that it's maybe 100 think tanks in Ukraine maybe 200 in Russia totally through the world probably thousands and thousands maybe ten thousands but the population of think tanks think tankers is equal probably to the population of Belgium. No, no, mm. 
Seriously. Population of thousands. A lot of scientists, millions of people. I think in China, 100,000, approximately. Yeah. Yeah, because the biggest thing, like in Xinhua, for instance, maybe too many things, too many ideas, too many participations, too many events. Davos, World Economic Forum, this small meeting, big meeting in Munich, a lot of meetings. A lot of people. It's a crowd, tribes of uh, politologists, sociologists, think tankers uh, move through the world. The same words, the same discussions. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a crazy situation. Uh, it seems to me, uh, uh, today think tanks uh, remind me a small bird, a uh, uh, canary. But you know, in the culture, there are two main role of can role, two main roles of canary. As a minor canary uh, and criminal canary. Criminal canary, uh, as usual, uh, spend time in prison and help administration uh, to, to, to keep control. Uh, the minor canary uh, helps minors and time to time from saving. But historically, the role of think tanks more, was more important. Uh, for instance, uh, Cicero in, in ancient Rome was executed uh, by Caesar uh, because he was a think tanker. He, he, he tried to help his fatherland uh, um, to, uh, to, uh, to save him. Uh, Marsilio Ficino in the 15th century created a fantastic academy uh, for creation of bold ideas. Uh, in one hand ago, Chatham House became a very important uh, position. Now, we, 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 we are waiting for very miserable life for think tanks. My question is very simple. First of all, thank you very much for your speeches. It's very simple. Uh, uh, what is the first real step? Of course, a lot of discussions about uh, new hierarchy of media and so on and so on. It's a, it's a common sense. What should be, what is the first practical step? Not, not, not discussion about our role in the process. Sorry, excuse me. Thank you. Okay, so um, let me try and read back the question so that we can all um, understand it. I love the idea that we might be canaries, um, and let's remember that the <laughs> let's remember that the poor canaries in the mines had to die to serve the miners. Um, so let's. So what's the real step? I mean, maybe um, can I can I paraphrase your question in that many many think tanks in Russia and Ukraine, a lot of talking, no action. Is it all, or as we used to say in, in England, all mouth, no trousers? Yeah, okay. So um, that's a hard question, so I'm going to ask our panelists first. <laughs> um, do, do we talk too much and, and achieve too little, Shana? Um, <laughs> we do talk, <laughs> yeah. but we also think. We also think. No, we, we, I think, I mean, I take, I take what you've said, and there is a truth to it that people do go to conferences, whether it's Davos or Munich or Resina or Wow, you know, we go there and we're actually heartened and reassured to see other people who more or less, more or less, you know, agree with us or disagree with us, but it's all very polite, very courteous. And, and, and I think, you know, that, that, is, that is a fair, a fair assessment. It's not a criticism because, you know, as someone said, Giorgio is better than World War. So, I mean, if we are talking, we're not shooting at each other, which I think in today's world is important. But I think, I think you underestimate what um, thinkers can do. I mean, through history, and you've pointed out to some thinkers yourself, that there, there is a need for people who 
look beyond today's knotted problems to, to a future, who when they see a problem also see a solution, um, and who I think, as I said, can think the unthinkable, to think ahead um, and, and, and look beyond what looks at like uh, intractable. Uh, and that, I think, in an ideal world is what think tanks do. So maybe lead by inspiration. I mean, all kinds of poetic things can, can happen. Um, we just have to do our job, which is to think ahead, to think, um, I would say, constructively in a world which is polarized and atomized and all that. And that is not, I would say, a minimal task in today's world. Huh? I mean, when uh, Trump or uh, Viktor Orban or people lash out with untruths and lies, and well, there, there has to be a reaction. I think we are part, if I may say so, part of the reaction, hashtag resistance. Um, Hilib, you, you talked about being part of the second generation of think tanks um, in a post-1989 world, um, fully formed digitally when you were born, which is, which is great. <laughs> um, do you, I mean, are the second generation think tanks in Ukraine more relevant than the first generation? Um, how is competition affecting you? I mean, are there too many think tanks? Uh, I believe that we are more relevant in terms of uh, working with uh, with general public and with uh, opinion leaders. Uh, however, I think that like answering the question, like the first thing we should do is to better understand needs of our clients, and uh, it means that uh, like as everything changed so rapidly in terms of. Uh, uh, in terms of using different communication channels, in terms of using information in different formats, in terms of uh, shortening attention spans of uh, most people, uh, not only in the government where it was also always very short because of uh, because they are very busy, but uh, among the general public as well, uh, we need to understand uh, like what. Uh, what are the needs, especially of those people we are reaching directly, like, for example, policymakers, uh, opinion leaders, media people, ask them uh, what should be formats we are uh, giving our uh, uh, research to them, and uh, we understand that sh there should be many different formats, a lot of repackaging of the same ideas for different clients. Uh, so it is, uh, it is one thing. Uh, the second thing is uh, really thinking a lot of, uh, of media planning and uh, how to, how to uh, deliver ideas not, uh, not just in a way of these conferences, discussions, these traditional formats, but how to do it directly. Like, for example, uh, of the limited... Uh, of my limited knowledge of like Russian uh, media landscape now, uh, and which is influencing Ukrainian media landscape as well, is a new culture of video blogging, where like uh, key video bloggers have audiences of millions of people, and uh, and in in many cases they are very political. Uh, so uh, so it is like the new format we we need to look on. 
Uh, plus, uh, the old thing that is uh, still very relevant and uh, which could make our work much more useful, uh, just confront the issues, and it, I, I believe that it is uh, more relevant to developing countries where the quality of policy analysis in the government is lower, just addressing daily issues uh, in the government, not, not really daily, I could say, like months. Or, uh, or those type of uh, challenges they have, those questions they have and, the, uh, and that they need to address by policy decisions and sometimes giving them very detailed analysis that could be very easily transformed into specific policy decision. Especially if uh, we have had very good example uh, with some of our studies that were in between, uh, in between areas in the government. Like, for example, the compensation schemes for uh, civil servants. Like, what should be the better compensation scheme? Because, for example, in Ukraine, it is somewhere in between Ministry of Finance, the agency responsible for civil service, uh, Ministry of Social Policy, and in, in it resulted in three years of endless talks about the problems of the compensation system of, for the civil service, uh, servants, but no decision because there was no responsible agencies that could prepare at, at least any analysis. So we, we did it, and it was very, uh, we, we got a very, uh, very unusual uh, level of respect to our findings from, from mid-level bureaucrats in these ministries because uh, they understood that those people who are in some strange think tanks sometimes could do a very good analysis they were not able to do themselves. Okay, we are losing our physical audience. And, uh, <laughs> so one, one, one final point. There were, uh, um, uh, in a conversation this morning in Berlin, um, same, same event, um, one of the things they discussed was should think tanks create more controversy? Um, and um, um, I'm, I'm delighted to be able to tweet about a conversation about think tanks from Saudi Arabia, um, where, they, where there they were advocating a theatrical and practical approach. Um, <laughs> so controversy, theater, the, 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 the tools of the entertainment industry, do they, are they going to play a part in our future? Um, Let's start with you first, and I'm going to give the last word to Shada. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure that yes, that we need to have more trainings in uh, good public in good public speaking and storytelling. Uh, in uh, like we we are living in the changing world when uh, it is very hard to take the person from his or her smartphone from the <laughs> endless news, news feed uh, on Facebook or on Instagram or on social media and uh, take by hand and say something that could distract the person from those already distracting things. So uh, so we, we need to do it and I believe that it will be for, 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 for good because uh, um, it will develop us as uh, people, as experts, as personalities. Okay. Shada, yeah, theater, controversy. <laughs> Absolutely. We're already doing it. We're doing it. I mean, 10 years ago, Matt, we would have been sitting behind a desk yep. or a whatever, a panel, and you would have said to me, you would have introduced me and said, 10 minutes, say whatever you want to say, and there would hardly have been any real connection. So I think, you know, this kind of format, this is evolving even further, the Twitter, the 
Um, you, you have to, I mean, that's what I mean when I say stories. It's actually, yeah, theater is a good word too. Because if you can't grab somebody's attention and keep them engaged and, and interested in what you're saying, you've lost the plot. Literally, you've lost that person. And I think we're, we, we, you know, webinars that are being held. Um, and as, you know, climate change arguments become more forceful, people will probably, and visa restrictions become more powerful. Uh, we'll also probably be doing um, much more on FaceTime and Skype than we do now. Um, and I think that's why we always turn to interesting people, you know. Um, you know, it's not always the politician. We turn to the stars. Angelina Jolie, I'm going to show you, she was sitting here. Not everyone, you know, would have looked at the watch and said they're leaving. So, yeah. you know, those she, kinds of... She will be here tomorrow. Great. Well, not here at Bruegel. Um, she's at NATO. No, tomorrow. NATO. No, no, no. Yeah. I was thinking, oh, my God, what a coup. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. That's why, that's why actually... I read about Angelina Jolie this morning on Ryan Heath, and that's why I mentioned her specifically. Yep. And I think now is a time to become even more um, controversial because we have this big European Parliament elections coming up. Uh, the commission is going to change. There'll be new leadership, hopefully real leadership across the uh, across the EU institutions changes. Um, and I think that's the time when we can, if we want to really be different, this is when we should start putting up our, our stalls and, and making our ideas known. You know, do we still want party political, the candidates from parties, I can't say it in German, but, or do we want merit and quality and, you know, real credentials to count this time around? Do we want more women? Do we, more, uh, do we want more diversity? What kind of parliament should there be? Do we want a convention of people, public consultations? I mean, these are such important issues, and we have to make them. Uh, part of our, our story and make them more interesting so people become engaged. Otherwise, we're going to have another European Parliament election where 30% turnout, if we're lucky, we can't afford that. We literally, sorry to say, can't afford that. The stakes are much too high. Thank you both. It's been a very interesting conversation. Nice. Um, I've learned a lot. Um, I personally commit to being more theatrical <laughs> Um, in the future, if that's possible. Um, please continue the conversation on Twitter. It's a global conversation, um, and these events will be continuing to run over the 24 hours of the 30th of January. Um, and I believe the, the big one in Washington, D.C. will be live-streamed um, sometime this afternoon. Um, have a look on our website for details. The hashtag um, is hashtag ThinkTanksMatter. Thank you, Thank you, Shada, and thank you to you.